Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Eleni Steinman. She's the head of strategy and operations at BloxRoute, and she is joining me today to talk all about all of these complex, super technical uh, blockchain concepts that you know most of the, us non-technical people don't understand. And she's going to break it down for us in a super easy way to understand so that we can all get on board with what L2s are, what gas fees are, what is this new EIP 1559 thing that's coming out tomorrow, all of these things. So I'm really excited to have Eleni here to break all of this down for us. Welcome, Eleni. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So before we dive into the nitty gritty, I'm just curious about your personal background and how you got into crypto in the first place. So uh, when did you first hear about crypto? What was it that intrigued you and, you know, dragged you down the rabbit hole? Yeah, maybe five years ago now, I was in business school and I went because I knew I wanted to work at a startup and I wanted to work in fintech. And in researching where in fintech I could find my footing, I discovered, you know, the Bitcoin white paper and fell down the proverbial rabbit hole. You know, it was a new, interesting space, a way to send money that I had just never heard of before. And in deciding of where to take my career, it was either I could hop into a new cutting edge technology or go to sort of like a boring, you know, bank. And the choice was like very clear. And I'm so happy I made it. Yeah, for sure. So when you first read the Bitcoin white paper, which is pretty hard to digest for somebody who's not in the space, what was your thought process? And like, how did you go about, you know, understanding it? Because I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure most people who read the Bitcoin white paper for the first time have no idea what it's talking about. Yeah, I, I think I was already in sort of an educational mindset from being in business school. And I tried to Google for the answer as any good student does. And Princeton had a really good sort of like free textbook that explained Bitcoin and digital technologies in such a great high level way that anyone who didn't have a technical background could understand. And so I literally read a textbook about Bitcoin. Um, And I think they still have a website. I can try to find it this and afterwards uh, with videos that really explain like how blockchain works and the basics of cryptography and of uh, computer science that, you know, anyone should probably know if they want to read the white paper. Yeah, for sure. Definitely send that to me after. Maybe we can link it in the show notes or something for people out there who are interested in learning more. Um, And so before people go and do their own research and learn more, luckily we have you on the podcast today. And so you can break down a lot of this stuff for us. And so let's just run through some of the the buzzwords and some of the hot topics that people are talking about in the space first before we dive into Blocks Route and um, everything that you've been working on there. And so I guess the first question I have is let's just start from Maybe let's start from the beginning. So there's transactions on the blockchain. How do these transactions get on chain? Like, what does all of this mean? 
Yeah. So I like to always describe blockchains as a database, right? And so if anyone's used Excel, you've seen a database before, right? You have columns and then you can input data into the rows and columns. And in in the blockchain, there are actors called miners and it's their jobs to add transactions to Excel. So you literally send them what you want inputted and they will compile everyone's request, so everyone's transactions into a block and then submit that for acceptance. I think there's two key things to know though. The first is miners don't have to do this work. They do not have to include your transaction at all. The reason they do it is because you pay them. You pay them a fee to include your transaction. And the second is they don't have to build a block. But why do they do it? Because the system itself rewards them with what's called the Coinbase or pays them in the native token to do this work of submitting a block. And so in Ethereum, you earned Ether. And in Bitcoin, if you're a miner, you earn Bitcoin. And so it is a economically incentivized position within a blockchain. Gotcha. And then, so how do we trust these miners to submit the information that we want them to submit? The way a blockchain solves this problem is they create randomness in who gets to actually propose the next block. And in proof of work, the way that the randomness is sort of decided who the winner is, is what maybe you've heard of as the, like the cryptographic puzzle. And so all these computers try to solve this really hard math problem. They don't know if they're going to win. You don't know who's going to win. And so because you don't know who's going to propose the next block, it makes it very difficult to try to corrupt the system, right? So this is where the idea of a 51% attack comes from. If someone has a 51% chance of winning, well, then you know who to bribe, right? If everyone only has a 5% chance, it makes it really expensive to have to bribe someone to get your trans your invalid transaction on chain. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And so um, the fees that you pay these miners to include your data that you want to include in the block, is that what the gas fees are? That's exactly right. The gas fee is what you are paying them to incentivize a miner to include your transaction because, again, they don't have to. Gotcha, gotcha. And so with the gas fees, can we talk a little bit more about how they're calculated? Why is it that, you know, like when during the bull markets, the gas fees were sky high? Like I think when I first got into the space and I was trying to buy a crypto kitty, I was like, let me just find a cheap one to like play around with. I think it was like $7 or something. I was like, cool, I'll snag this. And then I went to go connect my MetaMask and sign it and stuff. And the, the gas fee was like hundreds of dollars. And I was like, I have to pay hundreds of dollars for a $7 crypto kitty. Like, like, obviously, like, I'm not going to do that. So how are gas fee prices calculated? And like, what else can you tell us about gas fees? Yeah. So let me give you some background information. I think that will help make it more clear. Miners do this work of creating a block. And again, this block can be empty so that they can win the Coinbase, which right now in Ethereum, I think is like two ETH. And so they solve this puzzle. But to win, not only do you have to solve the puzzle, you've got to tell everyone you won. And when you tell people that you've won, uh, what you care about is how quickly they can hear that, oh, here's my answer. You know, I'm the winner. I get to add the next block. 
And that comes down to how much data you send them. So every time you add a transaction to a block, you increase the amount of data that you need to send and you slightly hurt your chance of winning because someone else could win at the same time and send less data and they'll beat you to the punch. And so if you think about adding a transaction as almost hurting the miner's chance of winning the next block, you need to compensate them for that lost revenue. And so in theory, the minimum fee that you should pay a miner is commiserate with the additional data that you're asking them to put in the block. Now, in reality, what happens is uh, block space is limited. Everyone's trying to buy CryptoKitties at the exact same time. And miners say, hey, I'm going to give this space to the highest bidder. And so you end up with what's called a first price auction. Everyone is just outbidding each other. You don't know what other people are bidding until after you bid. So people bid to the moon and you end up with congestion. I think we're going to talk about E1559. This is the problem E1559 is trying to solve. The way the fee uh, market is structured, which right now is this auction. Yeah, let's dive right into that. Then that's a great tra transition. So for people who aren't familiar with what it is, maybe start with like, what what does it actually mean? And I think there's a lot of confusion around like, does EIP 1559 mean that we that ETH gas fees are going to be lowered uh, for good? Or, you know, I, I think that is probably the most common misconception. So maybe we can like, address why that's wrong. Yeah. So okay, Let's first describe how a transaction works right now, a transaction fee. So there's two numbers in your transaction fee. There's one that is the gas limit, which is confusing because there's also the block gas limit. But when you send a transaction, you have a transaction gas limit, which should reflect how computationally difficult your transaction is. So if you're just sending from A to B, the standard like vanilla transaction is, I believe, 21,000 gas. Then you have to pay the miner uh, a fee per unit of gas, and that's the GUE. So when you go to like gasnow.com and you look at, you know, the gas price that you fill in, it's maybe it's somewhere between like 30 and 150. That's you saying for every unit of gas that my transaction requires, I'm going to pay, let's say, 30 GUE. So you would just do 30 times 21,000. That's your total amount, the price that you're you're paying. And then people turn it into dollars, right? Because we think in dollars. So when you convert to dollars, you have to look at the price of ETH. Okay. That's how the world is right now. Sometimes the cost of your transaction is high because you have to pay a lot more way. You're telling everyone trying to buy a bunch of crypto kitties. You say, oh, I'm going to pay you, you know, 150 way per unit when someone else is only going to pay 20 except my transaction. But sometimes your fees are really high because ETH is just expensive. You know, you're still paying the normal 20 way per unit, but now ETH is not $600, it's $3,000. So in dollar terms, the price of your transaction has gone up a lot. And I say all this because what ETH 1559 does is it changes the way fees are paid to miners. So it takes, it abstracts this away and it, you have two numbers now. You have what's called a base fee, 
and sorry, the part that's changing is just the GUI part. So your computation stays the same. It's always 21,000. That's just how hard it is to run your transaction. But in terms of the GUI, you pay a base fee that is determined by the network. So the idea is when uh, congestion is low, your base fee is low. And when congestion is high, then uh, this will inc exponentially increase. And then the next thing you pay is called a tip. And that is supposed to be equivalent to signaling how quickly you want your transaction on chain. So if you really want your transaction the next block, you pay a really high tip. And if you don't care, you can pay a low tip. But the thing I like about 1559 is at the very least, your tip needs to compensate the miner for the additional risk of including your block because the base gets burned, so they don't see that. So when we're talking about the opportunity cost of adding a transaction because of additional bytes, that gets captured now in a tip, right? So let me take a back. I think the biggest misconception about E1559 is that it's going to lower your fees, but there's nothing here that I told you that's telling you your fees are going to go down. All it does is it makes your fee more predictable. So the way the base fee is calculated is based on what the fee was in the last block. So you should know, right? You can see what you can expect your base fee to be. And then the tip part is where you express how desperate you are to get your transaction on chain. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so is the tip thing a new thing with EIP 1559 or is that something that exists now? It's a new thing. Yes. Right now, the, the both those things are sort of put together in the transaction, right? You express how badly you want your transaction on chain just by paying a lot in GUI. Okay, that makes sense. So right now, I'm just picturing like how a transaction works. If I'm going to go and buy a CryptoKitty or do anything, I connect my MetaMask. I can say, you know, I, I can choose slow average or fast speed, like how desperate I am to get this transaction through. Um, or I can even set like what, what I tend to do because I'm a cheapskate is I'll like go to advanced and I'll set like a really low way price because I'm really in I have like no emergencies on the blockchain right now. And so I'm like, well, I want this done at some point, but I don't really care. So just whenever it drops to like super low. So in the future now with 1559 out, like what will that process look like? Honestly, it's going to be different for every wallet. And uh, Taylor Monaghan from MyCrypto has a great tweet thread about how E1559 is incredibly complex for a user. And this is because of the way tips work. So when you set your transaction, you can set most wallets require you to set a maximum amount that you want to pay. And so from the maximum amount, so you can set the maximum amount, you can set your tip. And then what gets burned is from the network. And so if there, if what the burned is plus the tip is less than your maximum, you'll get a refund, right? Well, if you like really, really care about your transaction getting on train, you should think you should pay a really high tip. And so you could have an upfront, you could pay a lot of money to get it on chain. Uh, but someone else could end up paying a low tip. But if there's congestion, the base will be really high. And in the end, you'll end up paying the same, even though one person expressed a higher desire. And so the answer is like user experience is not going to be benefited from this. And every 
wallet is dealing with it in a completely different way. Uh, and I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer. <laughs> I had another question too. I, I apologize if you already covered this and I missed it, but another thing that like affects how much gas fees are is what ETH is at because we always like to convert it back to dollars. Does this take into uh, consideration or like how how will ETH inflation relate to this? Like, does that solve that problem at all? Or is it still like that part of the equation of how much ETH is worth? Like, we can't control that, right? I'm glad you asked that. It actually makes everything more expensive because of this base fee that gets burned. It makes ETH now deflationary. And so you'd expect in the deflationary asset, the price of the asset to rise because over time, so eventually the coin base goes away. So when miners mine a block, they earn ETH, but at some point in the future, they won't earn ETH anymore. They'll only earn tips now. And at that point, ETH is still getting burned with every transaction. And so we'll see a declining supply and you would expect the price of ETH to go up which means you would also expect your transactions to get a lot more expensive. If you, you know, follow crypto Twitter, people talk about ultrasound money because they're really excited about the price of ETH going up. But the sort of downside of that is ETH gets more expensive to use. Gotcha. So sort of to sum up what 1559 does, it makes fees more predictable, but not necessarily lower and actually probably higher. In dollar terms, they're higher. In dollar terms. Okay, okay, gotcha. Another thing that factors into all of this is the scalability issue that everybody is talking about today. And because it's because the gas fees are so expensive on Ethereum that there are layer two solutions out there now, like Polygon's probably the most popular one that people have heard of. Can you talk a little bit more about the scalability problem? Like maybe just start with what 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 is it, what causes it, and then we can get into some solutions. Yeah. So the scalability problem is basically Ethereum is a really slow database, and the way transactions get added to it, I believe it's 15 transactions per second. So 15 transactions get added every second, and Visa does like 30,000 every second. Right. And the reason it's slow is it has to do with the block size. Right. So as we mentioned before, miners create blocks that have a bunch of transactions in them and then they propagate these blocks to the network. If they propagate a really big block, then they run the risk that someone else beats them to the punch and their block doesn't get there first. They don't win the reward. Someone else does. So there's some incentive to uh, limit the size of the block. But in reality, that's not even what happens. I I wish the block size was based on research, but I'll explain in a second why that's not the case. And it's sort of this arbitrary number. Uh, But sort of in theory, you can't have a infinitesimally size, you know, infinitely size block because of the scalability bottleneck, which is you have to keep everyone in sync in the state of the network. And so actually what Blocks Route sort of does, what our original you know, mission is, is we help miners propagate larger blocks without those blocks going slower. And so our founders are networking engineers from Northwestern, and uh, we built a system that is directly connected to the majority of hash power in Ethereum. And we've been helping miners propagate larger blocks for the last two years. 
And we know we're helping because one way that you can measure the health of the network is something called an uncle rate, which is literally like the system keeps track of when you got second, right? So if you sent too big of a block and you ended up in second, it's called an uncle and you want your uncle rate to be low because you want to get B first, right? And over the last year, you know, the gas rate in Ethereum has increased from seven and a half to 15 million, so almost doubled. And uncle rates have gone down. And we think a lot of the reason uncle rates have gone down is because Blockshot has been there helping propagate blocks. But in a nutshell, the scalability bottleneck is about sending a lot of data to a lot of people. Gotcha. Okay. So then let's talk about some of the solutions to that because um, it's definitely not sustainable for gas fees to be super high forever. Like, you know, like nobody's going to do anything with decentralized applications if they can't do it cheaply. It's just not going to be accessible to the masses. So L2 solutions, layer two solutions. We've done podcast episodes in the past on layer two solutions, but love to hear your take on it. Like what are the best layer two solutions out there right now? So layer two solution is a bit of a misnomer because it doesn't solve the problem. It just moves it, right? So what a layer two is, is uh, an additional database that sort of sits to the side, you know, or you could think above if it's a second layer that a bunch of people transact on. And every now and then they send a transaction to the base layer to Ethereum uh, as a, a fraud proof. So like things happen up here and then you send it down to double check that nothing bad has happened. That didn't solve scalability. You just like made another blockchain, did a bunch of stuff and then uh, referred back to the original database. But sort of to go back to something I was talking about, which is the block size. I mean, the way you solve scalability is you increase the block size. And there are trade-offs. It's not, again, you can't just pick any number, but you could pick a gas limit that's slightly bigger and do more transactions. And in fact, one of the core, I don't know if it's a problem, but sort of interesting things about Ethereum versus Bitcoin is in Ethereum, miners pick the block size. So in Bitcoin, it's in the protocol. You have to make a one megabyte block. There's nothing you can do about it. In Ethereum, it is miners and very specifically mining pools of which three mining pools control over 51% of the hash. They can choose the block size every time they mine a block. So what the rule says is you can always produce a block that's plus or minus 0.1% from the prior block. And so if you wanted, you know, the block size increase, you would just 0.1% up and up and up and up. But what we see is miners sort of acting like a cartel where one big mining pool says, and you can actually look on Twitter, they just said, we're going to 15 million, and then the others follow suit, and voila, we're at 15 million. I mean, there's no transparency into how the decision's made. There's no input from the community. Uh, it's just, you know, whatever the top three mining pools want is what we get. That seems a little counter of, like, the whole ethos of decentralization. And while, like, it is decentralized or, you know, technically, I guess, but when in practice, it's just three mining pools controlling everything. That's that's a little scary, isn't it? One hundred percent. It's and I do want to say, I think miners are do try to be good stewards of Ethereum. But yes, at the end of the day, it is three actors that end up deciding the block size. 
And Blockstar sort of having seen this and working with miners and seeing, you know, E1559 coming, we have came out with a solution that we call the Ethereum Gas Limit Project, which is essentially a voting mechanism for the community to say what their desired gas limit is. Because part of the problem is miners don't know what the community wants. You know, everyone has a different opinion and some people are louder on Twitter than others, but it doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, what the community as a whole wants. And so if you hold the token, you can vote. And then if miners follow the vote, they get to earn the token. So you essentially pay miners to listen to you. And we believe that's a much more in the ethos, as you said, of Ethereum solution, because no one has to do anything. It's all based on incentives, just like Ethereum itself. And it delivers a clear answer and incentive to do the work to research what the right gas limit or optimal gas limit may be. Gotcha. And so with Ethereum gas limit EGL, uh, is that something that is going to basically allow us to continue operating on the layer one instead of moving to a layer two and still experience the same low gas fees that we would on a layer two? I mean, honestly, you'll probably need them all. Like, I don't think it's it replaces a layer two, because if in the future you want Ethereum to be the world supercomputer, right, you'll probably need proof of proof of stake, you know, ETH 2.0. You'll probably need sharding. You'll probably need a bunch of layer twos and side chains. I don't think it's an either or. But for layer twos to work, layer one has to work because of those fraud proofs. They need to be able to check that uh, the data that's locked in layer one you know, matches what's happening up here in layer two. And I think that's a key part that people miss. You can't just abstract away the solution to another chain if it's dependent upon the base layer. Okay. And so maybe to back up a little bit, I guess like one thing I'm confused about is uh, like layer two solutions, like let's just take Polygon, for instance. When I transact on a layer two, like when I um, go on Polygon chain instead of Ethereum mainnet, my gas fees are so much lower. They're like basically negligible, like they're pennies. And so how is the layer two able to do that? Because they don't give you the same security guarantees as Ethereum. So you know what's a really cheap, quick database? One node, right? And as you add nodes, you uh, slow down the database because now you have to sync and you make it more expensive, right? And I actually don't know how many nodes Polygon has, but they probably have a lot less than Ethereum, which is why they can do it. They can sync a lot quicker and they give up some other security guarantees uh, that they rely on Ethereum for. So they're able to make it cheap because Ethereum exists, which is why it's so important that you can transact on Ethereum because layer two breaks otherwise. Gotcha. So, okay. So layer two solutions are never as secure as layer one solutions. By themselves. They can't, they're they secure with layer one, but you couldn't just go by yourself. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And then another question that I have about layer two is, wouldn't layer two eventually face the same scalability problems that layer one faces now? And so then you just have to keep doing it like layer three, layer four? Maybe. Yeah, I think it could. I think a lot of other layer ones are hoping 
that uh, some demand moves away from Ethereum to a Solana, to, you know, a Polkadot or Ava or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the answer is everything has a scalability bubble, like a, a limit or else fees go up. Right, right. And that's why you created EGL. I, I want to know more about that. But another thing that you mentioned earlier is ETH 2.0. Can you talk more about what that is? Yeah. So right now, going back to the way to miners and what their their job is in the system, uh, you get to produce a block if you solve this puzzle. And that's proof of work. That's the servers. They're taking up a bunch of energy because it's a uh, it's a compute problem. In proof of stake, it's your chances or your opportunity to produce a block is now based on how much money you stake. And so we changed the name. They're no longer miners. They're validators. And uh, the order of which when it's your turn comes with how much money you put down. And the security guarantee here is like if you're malicious, you could lose your money. Right. Sort of like put your money where your mouth is type of thing. And everything else is the same. They still have to build the block. There's still fees that you need to pay them, and they still choose the block size. The only difference is how we decide who gets to be, who gets to produce the next block. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so to sort of sum it up, can you just give us a quick like summary, TLDR of like how 1559 benefits Ethereum users? and how ETH 2.0 benefits them. Yeah, let's start with that. Yeah, so ETH 1559 creates better fee predictability. So with more certainty, you should know what you're gonna pay. But in dollar terms, you might be paying more because if ETH goes up in value, then in dollars, it's worth more. Uh, For ETH 2.0, And actually, I missed the second part of it, which is the first part is it changes who produces a block from proof of work to proof of stake. So instead of a cryptographic puzzle, it's now who stakes the most ETH. And then the second part of ETH 2.0 is is a scalability solution that's called sharding, which is literally you can just think of it as we go from one Ethereum to 64 Ethereums. So you've added more transaction power because there's just more Ethereums, right? If one ETH can do 15 transactions a second, 64 of them can do 64 times 15. And that's, the ETH community is uh, rolling out these changes in stages. So when ETH2 is fully functional, it'll have all these other changes. Gotcha. And ETH2 is still a layer one Ethereum, right? It's not a layer two solution. Right. Yeah, it, it is. Right, ETH1 right now is called 1.x, and then it'll become ETH2. But yeah, it's the same same blockchain. Gotcha. So could that be our solution to the scalability problem? Yeah, I mean, it's a solution. But if you you know have so much demand that 64 blockchains now doesn't cover it, like you probably will need more. But yes, it'll certainly help. Gotcha. Okay. And then how does EGL tie in with those? Like, is it, does EGL work together with 1559 and ETH2 um, yeah. to accomplish its goals? So we actually think ETH1559 really needs Eagle. And here's why. In 1559, the miner or the user pays a base and a tip, but the miner only gets the tip. 
right? The base gets burned. And so the only way a miner gets a tip is if there's congestion, right? When you tip, when everyone else is trying to also get in the block. And so if the miner wants to make substantial transaction fees, they kind of want congestion. There's never any incentive to increase the gas limit because you'll just lose money from your tips. And so what Eagle does, which I don't want Eagle to be construed as like a mechanism to increase the gas limit because maybe the right answer is, you know, what we currently have or slightly higher. But if you want the miners to ever do anything to the gas limit at all, you sort of need Eagle to compensate them to listen because that uh, incentive is gone now with 1559. Just so I understand. So Eagle essentially makes it so that the people get to decide what the gas fees are. Yeah. And the way Eagle's launching is we are seeding core developers with free Eagle so they can vote and they can make public what their desired gas limit is because core devs aren't all in alliance of what the right answer is, but they're a great signal. People should definitely see what they want and, you know, pick your favorite core dev to follow type of thing. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So Blocks Route is the company that you were originally working, that you still are working at. And then Eagle is like a project that you spun out of it. Yeah, it's, yes, yeah, you say it's being incubated within Blocks Route uh, because it's launching on August 7th. I don't know when this is coming out. And once it's launched, like it's, we don't want it. It's not ours. It's in the community. We've designed it in a way that it's fully functional, you know, the moment it launches. And Blocks Route, we just thought we were the right people to build it because we sit between miners and users. We knew this problem very intimately and uh, we thought it needed a clever solution. How did you come up with this idea? I mean, Ori and I came up with it just sort of starting from a place of like, how do we get miners to listen to the community? We could pay them. We don't have any money. <laughs> like, who's going to pay them? And then we talked to Joey from uh, Pantera. And I forgot what in particular he said. He, he might have mentioned, you know, a governance token. And then we're like, oh, what if we came up with a governance token over this parameter? Gotcha. So is it basically going to be set up like a DAO, like Eagle, once you release it to the community? Yeah, there most definitely there's a DAO, there's a Discord, uh, a way to propose changes, a multi-sig that actually governs the contract. We're not selling tokens. There's no sale because it's not ours to sell, right? We just want it out there with value. So miners want to listen and seated with individuals that will vote who uh, are good stewards of what the gas limit ought to be. Wow. How long did it take you guys to build this? Well, actually, Shane built it. Uh, it we were working on this for maybe a year. And uh, he had to build it a couple times because we kept changing things on him. But we've been working on it for about a year. That's still very impressive. Um, super impressive. Was 1559, had that been proposed yet? Was that like, did, were you aware of that when you um, came up with this? 1559 had been proposed and was there were rumblings about it, but I don't think it had like sort of the steam it has now. So we were aware of it, but I don't think it was so clear how well it went together until pretty much, you know, a lot later. 
Yeah, for sure. And then I, I want to know more about Blocks Route as well. Obviously, this is a really big thing that spun out of it. But um, there, I'm, I think there are other products that Blocks Route offers as well uh, for developers. And so do you want to talk briefly about what those are in case there's developers listening that you know want to use those products? Yeah, uh, our main products are around trading tools. So because we're networking engineers working at the networking layer, uh, we can offer services that help you get your transactions on chain faster, that can help you avoid getting front run by a bot. So, you know, a big problem right now on uh, Ethereum is your transaction's public. And so if someone sees your transaction, they could try to beat you to the punch by putting in a higher gas fee and stealing your profits or sandwiching you. And Blockchain has a service called private transactions, and we'll send it from you to a miner so it doesn't go on the public network so a bot shouldn't be able to detect it it goes right to a miner and only when the block is produced you know is your transaction seen we actually have a tool if you're not a programmer can't do api you can go to backrunme.com and if you're swapping on uniswap let's say for example oftentimes your trade could produce profits for the next transaction. So it's called back running. And those are profits you don't see, but it's based on your trade. And so we'll give you some of those profits back if you, you know, use our tool to, to trade. Uh, other services we have is like mempool streaming. So if you want to monitor the mempool, you can, you know, use our mempool services. And we're actually also live on Polygon. So we offer the same services on both Polygon and uh, Binance Chain because we're we're blockchain agnostic. We're just a network. What are some projects, maybe some that like people have heard of that have used Blocksrout? Well, most of our users are traders who probably don't want me to say oh, who okay. they are. <laughs> so I won't do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, we will stay away from that. Um, yeah, but that's really cool because that is something that I've thought of before is like with blockchain, all of the transactions are public. And sometimes you might conduct transactions that you don't want everybody seeing, you know, that attached back to your wallet. And it doesn't have to be like anything bad, but you know, like if you're like making transactions on OnlyFans, for instance, like maybe you don't want your boss seeing that. Right. Um, yeah. But so for this, your transaction eventually will be seen, but only after it's confirmed. So if you need privacy, maybe use like Monero. <laughs> but if you want, uh, if you don't want your transaction seen before it's confirmed so that someone can't steal your trade, then we're helpful. Are you aware of solutions out there where you could basically like hide part, like some of your transactions? Well, I know there's mixers. So like Tornado Cash is a mixer. And basically what it does is it helps cut down the link between two wallets, right? So like if there was a wallet address that everyone knew was yours and uh, you were trying to create a wallet address that no one knows it's yours, you could send the money through a mixer and then to a new wallet. And now that wallet is not tied to you. So if you wanted to go on OnlyFans and pay from that wallet, people will see the transaction. They just don't won't know it's Diana. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Um, not that that's something I'm thinking about doing, but I'm <laughs> no, just, never. like, there's gotta be transactions. I mean, even now it's like people, 
they want to keep their LinkedIn separate from their Instagram, maybe, and like other social media. So I was wondering how that would work on chain. So I think there's, I haven't looked into this too much, but I know there's this secret network, which also helps with hiding transactions, but I don't, I don't exactly know how it works. Okay. I have to Google that after this podcast. <laughs> um, awesome. So any final thoughts on L2's gas fees? scalability, like key points that people need to know that we haven't, you know, maybe we haven't covered or just you want to summarize it? Um, I guess the answer is like, it probably matters what you want to do with ETH, right? If you're a long-term ETH holder, like ETH 1559 might be great for you because it's deflationary now. But if you're someone who sort of cares about the usability of Ethereum, then Things like L2 and scalability solutions and having sort of a say over the gas limit might be more important. So if you're, you know, a large investor who owns a bunch of investments and dApps that need a functional Ethereum, uh, your viewpoint on some of these things might be a bit different. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, one more thing I want to talk to you about before you go is um, women in crypto. I know this is a topic that you're passionate about. I'm passionate about as well. How do we get more women in crypto? Yeah, I have a great soapbox about this. And this is my soapbox. My solution to all diversity, higher problems is literally be friends with people that don't look like you. Because when you think of a startup, who do you go to hire from? You hire from your network. You hire from your close friends, not because uh, they're the most qualified people out there. It's because they're in your reach. You need someone quickly and you've probably been talking to them about it for the last you know, year and a half. You've had this crazy idea. And so the best way to get women into crypto is people who are already in crypto, who tend to be mostly men, be friends with women, you know, tell Tell them what you're working on, why you're excited about it. And over time, I think more women then will get excited about it because it doesn't seem like this crazy, you know, wild, wild west of trading, you know, whatever the perception is, because they're hearing it from a trusted source. Yeah, for sure. And I'm curious to hear, too, like what your experience has been being a, a woman in crypto, because I've had my experience, but, it, you know, I've only been in the space for less than a year and you've been in it for much longer and you are a lot more heavily invested in the tech side of things, which I think people associate. There's like crypto, you know, you can work in crypto and then you can be like a, a really technical person or like know all the technical stuff like you do in crypto. And that's sort of another layer of like even fewer women in that space. Um, so curious to hear like what your experience has been. Yeah, I feel really thankful to have joined a company that was founded by like researchers and professors because it's their job to explain technical things in a really, you know, digestible manner. And so that I think has set me up for some success in terms of like, in general, people have been very kind and, you know, no, I've had a great experience in crypto in that. People are excited to talk about what they're working on. And everything is public. People love to write on Medium. People love to tweet. People love conferences and socializing. My only maybe downside is I tend to avoid crypto after parties. It's just, it's not fun. I'm a I'm in my 30s. I don't want to go to some like crypto house party mansion with, you know, 95% 22-year-old boys who 
probably don't want to talk about blocks route. And so aside from opting out of like anything after party, the happy hour, 30 year olds, 40 year olds crypto scene is, you know, great and where I'm at. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then finally, for women who are trying to get in the space, you know, you offered some great advice for men. But for women who are trying to get in the space, like what advice do you have for them as it can be, you know, obviously, like super intimidating when nobody looks like you, and you're trying to sort of join this like, uh, this boys club that you just like don't feel like you fit into? Reach out, like you can find me on Twitter. I'm Eleni. Thanks pretty much on everything. I have found other women in the space because we all know we're in a, you know, small group to be extremely like warm and welcoming. So I would definitely say reach out. And my general advice, if you want to get into crypto and this goes for men and women is like, get on Twitter, get on medium, download MetaMask, go on Robston, one of the test networks. If you don't want to spend any money, play around with things like really see what crypto is and it'll help you figure out where in crypto you want to be because it's a huge industry that touches so many different you know parts of the economy that um, just saying crypto broadly can be more difficult for someone to help you out but definitely worth jumping in and I think people are really kind in crypto just men and women alike so yeah reach out I completely agree. And I am here for all the women out there as well. Um, so your Eleni thinks on Twitter, uh, everybody reach out to her. And then um, before you go last thing, tell people where they can learn more about Blocks Route if there are developers watching this or listening to this that are interested in the products. And also like where can people go to learn more about um, Eagle if you know they, they want to dive deeper into it and learn more about how it works? Yeah. So BloxRoute is BloxRoute.com, B-L-O-X Route.com. And then Eagle is EGL.vote. Uh, so they're two separate websites where you can learn about both products. And then we have robust medium pages for both BloxRoute and Eagle. So I would go to the homepage and then immediately navigate to medium to learn more. Perfect. And then the Discord, there's Discord channels for both of those as well, right? For uh, more of the techie or the, the devs. Listening. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today, Eleni. I really appreciate you breaking everything down for us. It's it, The technical stuff can be really overwhelming and intimidating for newcomers to the space. And even for people who've been in the space for a while, I think a lot of them um, still you know, might not be totally clear on how everything works uh, on the technical side. So I really appreciate you taking the time to break that down. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. If you still have questions about how these things work, uh, drop us a comment or tweet us at Unstoppable Web. Tweet uh, Eleni at Eleni Thinks on Twitter, and uh, we'll help you. We'll try our best to help you understand all of these concepts. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We will be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.